0: Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us today is Emily Fletcher. I have to say this has been the most enjoyable podcast to prepare for that I've had. Emily uh, teaches a class called Ziva Online. She runs Ziva; it's a meditation program. Um, She's spoken at Google. She's spoken at Harvard Business School. She's taught over seven thousand people to meditate. Her background is not one of having been raised as a monk in India. uh, You know, in the uh, meditating uh, as a celibate. Um, She was on Broadway for ten years uh, before coming to meditation and and i have to say even you know beginning to learn meditation with her it was a little bit of a disconnect for me uh, I, you know because she's an unlikely person to suddenly be teaching me meditation in my view having done a lot of meditation myself i've done 10 day silent buddhist meditation retreats i've studied meditation in seminary i've been doing meditation for years and what i want to say is that this course, this like two weeks of of online actually meditating with Emily um, has profoundly deepened and actually transformed any kind of meditation that I'm doing. So it it took me by surprise because I was not expecting that. And I'm not entirely even sure what happened, that that happened. So I want to unpack that in this conversation. But without further ado, uh, Emily, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've been so excited about doing this because you've actually done the program and I'm so excited to hear about your experience, especially because you have so much other meditation training. So I think this will be really enlightening for me and hopefully for everyone listening as well.
0: Okay, so you nailed it, right? In my view, you nailed it. It's the most fun I've had preparing for a podcast and it's had a huge impact on me. Uh, personally, and I'm still, you know, I mean, I, I kind of did the course. It's a two-week course, and then it's now been another week, and I've been doing it religiously, not, not religiously as in in a disciplined way. Um, I'm kind of curious to hear, like, what the magic formula is. And I want to go back in a minute and talk about your background and things like that. But what makes this so different? And I, I have a hard time putting my finger on it because I've done mindfulness and I've done mantra meditation and I've done manifest. I've I've done elements of this, but there's something that has made it incredibly deep for me. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what that is, but if you do, I'd like you to tell us.
1: (laughs) Sure. Well, I think that there are a few elements to it. You know, it's just like baking a really delicious cake. It's not just the eggs. It's not just the sugar. It's not just the flour. And probably your audience your listeners don't eat any of those things, but um but you have to have you know high quality ingredients across the board, and the order which you put them in matters the way that you mix them together matters the temperature that you bake the cake all of that stuff matters and so I think we're all looking for the one magic pill or the one secret sauce um, when it comes to meditation because it's simple right meditation is so simple, so we think we should just be able to like sit in a chair and close our eyes and magically be transported into some cosmic abyss of black hole nothingness, but it is a skill and it is a technique and I believe that it requires some level of um, maturity and also specificity when teaching and similarly when practicing. And so what we created at Ziva is something called the Ziva Technique. And it is a trifecta of, like you said, mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. And where this gets a little tricky is that a lot of people are using the words mindfulness and meditation as synonyms. And so they get confused. Um, They'll try and practice meditation, but they're trying to do focusing techniques of mindfulness. Or vice versa, they're trying to reach some cosmic enlightenment or different states of consciousness while they're doing mindfulness and then it ends up being counterproductive or just frustrating. And so I think a lot of it with, with Ziva Online, I, I, I wanted to make it a, a balance of intellectual training and experience, meaning you have, the intellect has to know enough to keep getting your buns in the chair. You have to have an intellectual understanding so that it makes sense to you so that you can move past your resistance, which we all have but then you also have to have this simultaneous increase in consciousness. And that really is is happening through an experiential thing in the body by giving the body very deep rest. And, and what's providing that is a combination of the technique itself, which is all about effortlessness and ease and the specific mantras that we use in Ziva
0: online. So I find it interesting, you know, in fact, before we go deeper why don 't you give us a, a distinction between mindfulness meditation and and manifestation because it, it I think that 'll help ground the conversation and then we 'll move on from there
1: sure so when when most people hear the word meditation, especially people who don 't have any um, training yet. They're, they're thinking of what I would call actually mindfulness. So most of the apps out there, most of the YouTube videos, most guided visualizations, most of the drop-in studios, they're practicing some flavor of what I would call mindfulness. Now that word mindfulness is relatively recent, it didn't really exist until John Kabat-Zinn came back from Tibet and in India in, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s, and started teaching um, what were uh, largely Buddhist practices, not exclusively, but largely Buddhist practices, but he took out the Buddhist nomenclature so that it wouldn't feel, you know, scary or freak out, you know, middle American, corporate, Christian folks in, you know, in the US. And I think we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to John kabat for the work that he's done, because I feel like he's really moved the needle and introduced these relaxation practices and mindfulness in a way in the, in the U.S. that maybe wouldn't have happened if it weren't for him. And I think that, um, so I'm very grateful to that work. Now, where this gets a little confusing is that mindfulness, as we understand it in the West, are are derivations of monastic practices, meaning that these techniques were largely designed originally for monks. And they require a lot more focus, they require a lot more discipline, and this is why a lot of people think that meditation is hard, because they're doing adaptations of techniques that were not made for them. They're doing adaptations of techniques that were designed to be done in monasteries with people who don't live in society. Versus the foundation of the meditation that I teach in Ziva is even though it's a 6,000-year-old practice, it was designed for people with busy minds and busy lives. It was actually designed to be integrated into your life to make you better at life. Now, most people think that whatever monks are doing, it must be so much more powerful because they're monks. They got to be like vibrating or levitating or something. But it's actually the other way around. If you have a job and kids and stuff to do, You have less time in your day with which to meditate. So you want to do a practice. This is going to go in and really give your body deep healing rest so that you can be more awake and more productive in the rest of your life. So basically what we do at Ziva is that we use mindfulness, which I didn't really define the two. So let me just do that. Mindfulness I would define as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Quite simple, quite beautiful. The art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. And we could all do that right now. I could say, all right, everyone, let's take a breath in through the nose for two. And we'll do this and out through the mouth for four. Again, in through the nose for two. And just feeling that sensation as you inhale and out through your mouth for four and that would be a beautiful mindfulness tool of bringing yourself into the body, into the right now, bringing your awareness into the here and now, which is a beautiful and powerful practice. But mindfulness techniques are keeping you more in your left brain, more in your waking state, and they are more about directing your focus. Um, this is why guided visualizations, counting your breath, um, visualizing your chakras, doing, imagining a waterfall, these are all left brain waking state practices. So we use mindfulness almost like a runway as an appetizer into the main course of the ziva technique which is meditation
0: and how long in your in your view because it's it's changed a little bit and and i like how long do you are you doing mindfulness before you get into the meditation piece
1: uh when people are first starting like a few minutes like i have people be quite deliberate about the mindfulness in the beginning um but eventually once once your body starts to understand the art and the beauty of of the surrender that is meditation, then you become a little less dependent on that runway. So
0: you can jump right in kind of thing.
1: Yeah, most people, once once the body understands meditation and you start to pave those neural grooves in the brain, simply having the intention to meditate becomes enough. So you don't necessarily find yourself as dependent on the mindfulness tools, but they still are relevant like for your waking state, for the times that you're not meditating, you know, if you're in traffic or if you want to, you know, punch somebody in the face or your kid is being a ding dong, you know, like those are really nice times to practice mindfulness because that's something you could do in the now.
0: It actually answers one of my questions because I noticed like a lot of the 15-minute meditations were like 25 minutes long. And I think it's because you're counting the meditation piece itself as 15 minutes and then you've got this runway and then i and I guess a landing strip of sorts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so we can sort of condense that a little bit. I mean, you can do it as time allows all right. sort of, so the practice, you know, for everyone is it's 15 minutes twice a day is what I recommend once you have the training. Um, so, so that was mindfulness. So it's more of a left brain waking state, directing your focus, and it's very good at dealing with your stress in the right now right. versus meditation is all about giving your body deep rest and that rest gets rid of stress from your past. And most people have not experienced what I would call meditation because you're actually accessing a verifiable fourth state of consciousness, something that's different than waking, sleeping or dreaming. And in this state of consciousness, the right and left hemispheres of the brain start to function in unison. And when I say you're giving your body deep rest, it actually is somewhere between two to five times deeper than sleep. And we know that by your metabolic rate decreases, your heart rate slows and your body temperature cools. And so when you give your body the rest that it needs, it knows how to heal itself and one of the things that it heals itself from is stress. And so the meditation is not only dealing with your stress in the right now, but it's actually getting rid of all that stress that we've been storing in our cellular memories and that is the very mechanism that allows you to make such progress in the rest of your life. That's the thing that allows you to be better at your job, better with your kids, better at creativity and intuition.
0: So that's what I actually found so interesting, which is I think in all my meditation in the past, a thought comes up. And now I know I shouldn't be focusing on my thoughts. I should be focusing on my breath, right? Because I guess I'm doing mindfulness when I think I'm meditating. But I'm, I'm focusing on my breath and a thought comes up and I, and I think about the thought for a minute. And I go, okay, I know I'm not supposed to think about a thought, but huh, – isn't that interesting? That's the third time a thought like this has come up, right? And I'm a, this must be an area of my life. I got to log that in my head for something to deal with later, but I'm starting to see trends. And I would emerge from the meditation, not particularly relaxed, but feeling like I've gotten a bunch of insights. And, and what you talk about and gave me permission to do, which I found very, very interesting, not only for meditation, but for so many elements of life, is to, in effect, have something come up and make a decision not to deal with it, right? (laughs) And it's like something that we're, you know, those of us who are out there and who are leading and who are, you know, ambitious and who are, you know, type A, we deal with stuff. We're used to dealing with things. And so the idea of of having something come up and then be like, oh, I'm letting it go. I'm going, like, literally, this is what everybody says about meditation. I never did it, right? Which is to say, just come back to the breath. And I think what helps me to do it With you is you're saying you're you're framing it just the way you framed it, which is it really is um, stress like these thoughts are stress leaving the body. And if you hold on to them and you start to analyze them, you're actually stopping them from leaving the body. And when I think about the corollary of that to life, like when there's an issue and you sometimes you have to deal with an issue But if there's an issue you could actually just let go and you deal with it, you're holding on to that issue and you're not letting it go and you're keeping that stress in your life. So I found it both, you know, fundamentally interesting from an existential standpoint and also purely from a meditation standpoint, you know, incredibly useful.
1: Mm. And, And as you see, it's so much more effortless, like there's less for you to have to do. Right. Because if you think about it, when you go to sleep at night, you're not doing anything, and yet your body's running a whole host of maintenance operations. You're not telling your liver to clean, you're not telling your skin to let go of old cells. That just happens. And similarly, we're not doing anything in this style of meditation. There's some conditions we need to have to have the rest. The body heals itself and it's a pre-verbal, pre-cognitive level. So this is not therapy. So it's not like, oh, I'm thinking about my parents' divorce. Let me deal with my parents' divorce. That's what therapy's for. This is actually healing things on a cellular level so that you are actually eradicating that stress from your nervous system.
0: Right, right. It's really fantastic. Okay. And then and that meditation is mantra-based.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I I don't know if in a sentence or two you could tell me why mantra-based meditation works to do that versus mindfulness. Is sure. It, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So basically, and, and it's tricky because not all mantra-based meditation is the same. Some mantra-based meditation is still what I would consider mindfulness. It's still you're focusing on something. If the mantras are very long, or if you're chanting or singing, or if the mantras have you know, very specific meaning and you're focusing on the meaning, that kicks it over into mindfulness. Whereas we are using um, specific mantras, but we also use them in a very effortless way. And so they almost become like anchors and so it is the mantra that that acts as the key to the car and really helps to de-excite the nervous system and and it's the sound quality of the mantras that do that so there's a whole branch of science called cymatics c y m a t i c s which is the science of sound and just like if you were listening to like a cello or your favorite song that would affect the cells in your body in a certain way versus if you were listening to like Death metal, rap, or there's, or something that you don't like, and it would do it would affect your cells in a different way. Similarly, the mantras can either excite or de- excite the nervous system. So all we're really doing is inducing rest. You do that, body knows how to heal itself.
0: It's almost like self hypnosis as you're describing it. No?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've only done
0: one hypnus like hypnotist session. I, ne- I never have. So I'm talking uh, yeah. really with no knowledge.
1: But, and I did just have a hypnotist take my class last week and she was like, please come do a session because she's like, there are so many parallels. Uh, but the difference is that you're doing, and I, I actually, I don't know enough to say if you are inducing hypnosis. I think it actually is a bit of a different state of consciousness, but the, the difference is that it's, it's, um, you become self-sufficient with this. You don't
0: need someone else to do it for you. Got it. Okay. Give us a minute on the manifesting just to round out the triangle.
1: Yeah, so so right, like I said, the Ziva technique is a trifecta, mind, the three M's, mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting, and the manifesting is like the dessert of the course, and it's, that word manifesting gets a bad rap, especially with high performers, high achievers, leaders, because people think, well, oh, you just want me to like sit around and secret my dreams, or get high and play video games, like I have to work for a living, and I'm, Like me too, right? Like I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a hustler. I'm, you know, I like making things happen in my life, and that to me is the whole point of manifesting. It's consciously creating a life that you love. It's taking the time to actually get specific about what it is that you want to create in your life. And I'm amazed at how few people take the time to do this. Most people are like, "I just want more money. I want a boyfriend. I want to lose weight," and they just have these blanket sort of complaints. Versus getting very specific of, I want a residual income of this much. I want this type of relationship. I want to have this type of relationship with my body. You know, to really like give themselves permission to live in the dream long enough to, I call it, uh, place the order with the cosmic waitress at the cosmic <laughs> restaurant.
0: <laughs> um, it's great. And, and actually, I've, I'm one of those people who has some judgment around, you know, the secret and the sort of what people call magical thinking to some degree. And yet I think it's the, the section on manifesting, what that's done for me too, is forced me to get clear about some things that I, you know, am looking for, but I haven't necessarily gotten clear on. And, and I have found it to be useful too.
1: Good, And I mean, if you take this into like an entrepreneurial, like analogy, if you're running a company, if you don't ever take the time to get clear on what your core strategic objectives are, if you don't know what your KPIs are for quarter one, you're not going to know if you're succeeding or failing. And so taking the time to do this manifesting work is basically just making personal KPIs. It's like, what exactly do I want to create in my life?
0: Right. Let's take a, not a commercial break, but a, a, but a bio break in a very different kind of way than most people mean bio breaks um, to say, give us, give us a sentence on how you got to meditation. Like you, you know, you were on, on the chorus line literally uh, Mm -hmm. and, and, and you, uh, you know, somehow have found yourself to be, you know, a, a meditation teacher. What's the, you know, give us like a quick version of the journey.
1: Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was on Broadway for 10 years. Uh, my last show was A Chorus Line. I was understudying three of the lead roles, which means you show up to the theater with no idea which character you're gonna play. It's a lot of people's nightmare. Uh, I was living myself, my life in this constant state of anxiety. Started going gray at 26, had insomnia for 18 months. Um, was getting sick and injured and I was miserable. And then I found meditation and it cured my insomnia on the first day of the first class. And I've slept through the night every night since. That was almost 11 years ago. And then I stopped getting sick. I didn't get sick for eight and a half years. I stopped going gray. I'm 38 years old now. I have like two gray hairs. I was legitimately going gray at 27. Um, And my whole life got better. And I was basically like, I don't understand why everyone doesn't do this. So I left Broadway. I went to India. I trained for three years to be a teacher. And then I opened up Ziva about five and a half years ago.
0: That's great. You uh, said... Uh, anytime you look for happiness outside of you, it's an addiction, mm-hmm. and and I um, I think that's an interesting statement. And I, I think that on the one hand, and you also say I'm, I'm going to get the language wrong. I think uh, um, oh no, I won't get the language wrong. It's it's you talk about bringing fulfillment to your work, and it's fulfillment looking for need as opposed to need looking for fulfillment, mm-hmm. and. I think everybody on the surface conceptually would agree, look, I'm not going to find happiness in, you know, the new car, or, you know, increased income or, you know, the new, you know, M&A deal that I'm trying to make. And that's not why I'm doing it. But in fact, I think most of us actually do look outside for for happiness. And, you know, and it's and what's the difference between finding happiness, finding joy and happiness in things outside versus looking for happiness in those things. Do you understand that distinction? It's a subtle distinction I'm making. So I'd love for you to talk just a bit about that and then also how meditation helps it.
1: Sure, so anytime you you perform like altruistic acts, like if you donate money or help someone or help a friend or volunteer, it gives you a hit of dopamine, um, which is a bliss chemical. Um, And that same bliss chemical dopamine, you release it um, within like 30 to 45 seconds of practicing this style of meditation. And, and are you and,
0: doing it in, is that in the meditation portion or the mindfulness portion? In the meditation portion. In the meditation portion, portion. Okay. So
1: So um, because most of us don't have a self-sufficient or repeatable means by which to access bliss and fulfillment internally, um, we know it must exist. And so we think if I can't find it inside, then I, it must be out here. And if it wasn't in my last boyfriend, well, then it must be in my next. And if it wasn't in my first Broadway show, well, then it must be in my next one or my next one. And I, I mean, I this was my life. Like I thought since I was nine years old, I was living in what I call the I'll be happy when syndrome, uh, which is the mistaken belief that you can somehow acquire your way to fulfillment. And I thought since I was nine that once I got on Broadway, my whole life would be sunshine and roses. Three weeks after my first Broadway show was the saddest I'd ever been. Because I, I realized at a pretty young age that I was interested more in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness.
0: So, so explain that distinction. That feels important.
1: Yeah. So I think most of us are pursuing happiness. We think we can acquire that some goal out there on the other side of some person, place or thing. And what I thankfully realized at 20, well, I don't, I can't say I realized this at 22, but I had a life experience that delivered the lesson at 22 because I literally achieved my lifelong dream at 22 and I wasn't happy. And so, whereas a lot of people won't achieve it till they're 40, 50, 60, and so they just have more decades of, of believing the story, of believing the myth or the lie. Um, so I realized that once I got on Broadway, it felt like my goal had been taken away from me. I didn't know what to work towards. So I was able to see viscerally that I was more happy when I was actually in the, in the happiness of pursuit, when I, I loved going after it. I love the, the actual pursuit was the thing.
0: So recognizing that your happiness is in pursuing something as opposed to getting it.
1: Well, that was one lesson. That was like part one, I would say, of the lesson. And then when I learned to meditate, I realized, because I used to pride myself on being a seeker. You know, you, you name the self-help book, I read it. You name the methodology, I did it. Like I was always like, you know, the next hot like self-help thing, I was into it. And I did what I call like software upgrades for de- a decade. And it wasn't until I found meditation that I was able to upgrade my hard drive. You know, I was able to actually defrag the brain computer so that I could actually start running all this fancy software I'd accumulated. Um, But all of this is a little bit, I'd say different from the fundamental question of this idea of are you need looking to be fulfilled or are you fulfillment looking for need? And so esoterically what's happening is that you're able to experience like on a visceral level, what every spiritual text has been saying since the beginning of time, what you seek is in you. The kingdom of heaven is within, right? Like literally every spiritual text of any merit, this is at the core of its teaching. And we all get that intellectually, but it wasn't until I started meditating that I was able to actually feel that viscerally every day, twice a day. And so, like I said earlier, what's happening neurochemically is within 30 to 45 seconds of you starting this, you actually flood your brain and your body with dopamine and serotonin, which are bliss chemicals. And that feels nice when it's happening. But if that's all it did for you, it'd be no better than any other drug. But what happens is that you access that bliss and fulfillment internally during the meditation. And then when you come out of it, that serotonin and that dopamine sticks around for a little while. And it actually changes the lens through which you see the rest of your life. It wipes some of that longing away from your lens of perception, which allows you to see things more accurately for what they are. And it allows you to start to see that like, where can I contribute? Where can I deliver my fulfillment? Where can I give? And then what I found is that the paradoxical thing that happens is that all those jobs, all the money, all the people who want to sleep with, like all that stuff starts to show up by accident because people want to hire happy people and people want to sleep with happy people.
0: <laughs> so the reason I originally, and we're, we're getting close on time here, but the reason I originally wanted to have you on the show was a friend of mine, Howie Jacobson, who, who had you on his podcast. And, and he said, Oh, you know, this interesting woman I've had on the podcast. And, and I said, send me a video of something. And, and he sent me, um, it might have been the Google talk or it might have been another talk. I can't remember. Uh, but here's what I found interesting, and, and you just alluded to it, you know, which is that um, just by, by saying sleeping with me, right? So, so you just alluded to this idea of like, you know, meditation is going to help you, uh, you know, make you more attractive, help you have better sex kind of thing. And you gave this talk. This, that's what it was. It was a talk about how meditation can help you have better sex. I, I, I might – I'm sure I'm paraphrasing, but maybe not, not by much. No. And what I what I found interesting is and this is like a little bit off the topic of meditation but not entirely is I really respected and I think a lot of leaders have this challenge of 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 speaking about the undiscussable about being willing to say something or speak something that is generally outside the norm of the arena that people are playing in of what is usually said but willing to say it. And I really appreciated and respected your willingness to do that. Now, you you, you know, the answer might be you're doing it for audiences who are very, very open to that, and so it's easy. You're not um, – but I don't know if that's true, but I think there's something there's something to learn from your willingness to, to approach uh, both meditation and how you show up around meditation in a way that is different than other people normally do, might be judged by other people. You know, you might have your own, my next book is called Leading with Emotional Courage. And there might be, you know, other elements of the emotional courage, the willingness to feel stuff in order to do stuff. And I'm curious if you could talk to that.
1: Sure. Um, So I started talking about meditation and sex out of necessity because so many of my students started coming to me and saying, like, Emily, I know you made a joke at the intro talk about, Meditation making you better in bed, but like this is nuts. Like this is crazy. This is animalistic. Um, I had a woman who had never orgasmed ever in her life. First week of her meditation career, I had her first orgasm. I have women who have been infertile, who doctors wouldn't even do IVF on them, and then after a year and a half of meditation, they have the egg counts and the follicle counts of eighteen-year-olds. Um, like it's, and that's just the sort of hard data that I have. That's not to speak of the whole like mirror neuron phenomenon where you start to become more intuitive and more generous. Um, and, and if you look at like the ailments around sex that, that are preventing people from have the type of and the kind of sex that they want, it's usually stress, migraines, tiredness, and meditation cures all of those almost immediately for most people. So it's like you're taking away that exhaustion, that stress, which the body doesn't want to reproduce when it's in fight or flight. You know, the last thing it wants to do is procreate when it's not even sure if this vessel will survive. Right. Um, so, most of my students started coming to me, and because most of the popular styles of meditation right now, like I said, are derivations of monastic practices, and most monks are celibate, you know they are reclusive by nature that we associate meditation with um, monasticism or or being a recluse. But the style of meditation that I teach is not for monks it 's for what we would call householders in India. Uh, which means people who do live in society and so there's no shame in talking about sex and meditation in the same sentence because it's something that is designed to make you better at life i would also say that you know i teach a lot of millennials millennial entrepreneurs and so there is a totally different just vocabulary and freedom around sex like there is not the taboo that i find in a lot of other generations there's actually a hunger to talk about it in ways that are Open and equal and empowering, and mm-hmm. and I think because I am one of the few female like real leaders in the space, I think that's another interesting opportunity to speak about it from a female perspective, whereas I come from a largely male-dominated tradition. But but to speak as far as like the potential like ridicule or backlash that hasn't really come to, like came around the the sex part of it, but it definitely came around creating an online course. I was really surprised at the blowback around that. But like the purists and the, I've gotten, I've been like kicked out of tribes and like kicked out of networks and people like won't associate with me anymore. And
0: because, and, because it's an online course and not an in-person course.
1: That's right. And, and I've been pretty amazed and because I, the one I made not, not Ziva online, but our first course was actually the world's first online meditation training. Um, and so I got a lot of blowback around it and it was pretty it, to be, I mean, I wish I could say it didn't affect me and whatever, but it was very sad. I was very hurt, and I was very—I um, don't know. I just, it just felt confusing to me because my my only mission, my only intention was to share these tools and to help people, and I spent years making a program that I thought was safe enough to put online, to where people weren't—you know—you're not giving like toddlers torches. You know, you that the tools are safe enough to where if someone's dealing with severe anxiety or depression, that it's not going to be overwhelming for them if they don't have face-to-face support. Right. So I it just took so much care and been putting into that, that it was, uh, that part was tricky. But I think it sort of forged me as a leader.
0: But it's interesting because there's so many, you know, meditation apps and, you know, people giving lectures and talking you through meditations and the Tara Brocks of the world who are like, I think when you say like not a lot of women, there's a like woman who's, you know, a, a senior level Buddhist meditation teacher who has a lot of stuff online. Yes. So, what, but
1: the, And here's the difference is that Sarah so, Brock is amazing. I think she's such an incredible speaker and she's speaking largely about Buddhism, right? And so these are more of the monastic practices versus these householder practices have been a lot more esoteric. They've been a lot more under wraps. That's why they're not nearly as popular. Most of the apps too are mindfulness, Right. So because the monastic tools are a are bit gentler, um, these things are, have been deemed like safer to be put out into the masses versus the more householder practice has been a little more under wraps.
0: Right. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. We are talking with Emily Fletcher. She uh, has created She's a meditation teacher, uh, has created a um, uh, an online meditation training as well as an in-person meditation training in New York and L.A., uh, I took the course, which is why we're having the conversation Ziva online, and and you know why don't you uh, do a quick pitch here for uh, for people who are interested from this conversation that might want to either connect with you or connect with Ziva online to to do a meditation training.
1: Yeah. So. One thing I'll say is that this is not an app. It's not a challenge. It actually is a training designed to make you self-sufficient, meaning that once you graduate from the 15-day training, you don't need me anymore. You won't be reliant on my voice or Wi-Fi or finger symbols or patchouli or incense in order to meditate. Like All you need is just to close your eyes and do it.
0: I want to say, just as a as an attestation to that, I don't know if you're going to like this or dislike this, but... I, I, I'm now meditating uh, 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. And yesterday was just a crazy day. And so I ended up doing my 20-minute meditation while getting a haircut. And I just shut my eyes and the guy was cutting my hair. And I figured it takes him about 25 minutes or so. So that's my timer. And when he tells me I'm done, I'm done. Like that's I don't crazy. know if that's good or bad, but that's, that's- – say
1: good for you, bravo. Like you put it in. Like this thing is designed to be integrated into a busy life. I've done it at many a pedicure salon. I've done it. I mean, the idea, yeah, you just get it in and you don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So That's good. Um, So yeah, so it's a training designed to, and then once you graduate, like you said, you can do it at the hair salon, you can do it on the, on a plane, on a bus, at your office with your kids screaming in the next door. You don't have to have, you know, perfect silence to do this. And it's only 15 minutes twice a day. Once you graduate, if you have a little more time, you can do more. Um, But the course can be found at Ziva, that's um, Z-I-V-A, zivameditation.com online, and you can actually choose your own start date and then it will to so the first three days of mindfulness training in day four through 13 that's really the meat and potatoes of the program that's the meditation training and then days 13 through 15 we do the dessert the manifesting and the cool thing is that you can choose how long you want to have access to the videos it's not like after 15 days it goes away you could either have access for six months or a year or unlimited which means just as long as the course exists And as you know, we have a really beautiful online community as well, which I'm in every day. My Ziva guides are in there, which are people who are training to be teachers with me. And so it's not only do you have the support from me, but also this beautiful global community of meditators. And really our job, our mission is to make this stuff accessible, attractive and to support you
0: along your meditation journey. Awesome. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon and hopefully meeting some of your listeners.
0: I look forward to it too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.